1: into action. Today, we are speaking with two fantastic guests. We have Sarah Moore, who is a clinic manager for the Animal Protective League Clinic, and Dr. Terry Kidd, who is a veterinarian there. Sarah, I'd like to welcome you to the show. Thanks for having us. And Dr. Kidd, welcome to the show yourself. Thank you. So before we dive into the deep infrastructure talking about the Animal Protective League, can you just share with me a little bit about why you became passionate for cats?
2: I come from a long line of cat ladies, (laughs) so I think maybe it's genetic. (laughs)
1: We've had cats my whole life. So that's the simple answer that you have out there. Dr. Kidd, do you have a follow-up to why are you passionate about cats? Mine's probably
0: similar to Sarah's. I don't know that there was a long line, but I've definitely been into cats for many, many years, and I was pretty heavily involved in animal rights work before I became a veterinarian. And then that kind of morphed into doing a lot of TNVR. And then I got involved with the local shelter and decided that I needed to go back to school and get my veterinary degree because at that time, there just weren't that many vets that seemed focused on shelter work and on doing trap-neuter return. But cats are a passion.
1: So how did you learn about TNVR? Well, I used
0: to work at a food bank in Peoria. And in the alley behind food bank, there was a colony of cats. And I went down there one day and saw that somebody had had three kittens that she dropped, looked like on the run because they were scattered. And I thought somebody needs to get these guys spayed and neutered. And this was back in 89. Alley Cat Allies didn't even exist yet. And TNBR was not well known at all. So I got a couple of live traps. I skirted around the local animal control facility that was trying to catch them and take them in to have them killed. And got started that way. And when I was in D.C., I was good friends with Becky Robinson and Louise Holton. This was before they started ACA. And so once they started Alley Cat Allies, we traded stories and stuff. And just it was it was out of necessity
1: more than anything. It seemed like our only option back then. Uh, when I got involved with the group, the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society that I ran for quite a while, I, I got involved with them in 94. But they started in 1992. And TNR was just seemed like it was the only option on the table for those that did not want to do euthanasia or trap and remove and kill or however you want to phrase it. But that was just not an option for the folks that were feeding the cats down on the waterfront. And so it just seemed like spay-neuter was the one thing that just made a lot of sense. And it seemed like that was our our only option. So, Dr. Kidd, you are our veteran, I would say, with regards to TNVR. When did you become a high-volume, high-quality spay-neuter veterinarian? I
0: graduated vet school in 2013 and worked with the shelter medicine program over there as a veterinary intern for 20 months and then came here to APL in July of 2015. So I've been doing it full time for about five years.
1: And over the last five years working in the clinic, have you seen the results of your efforts in the community? Do you get a sense that you feel like the overpopulation waters are receding or do you still feel that sense of population pressure?
0: I'm going to let Sarah answer that one because she's got all the statistics on what they were seeing with the local animal control facility before. I'm going to turn it over to Sarah.
2: So I've been here since 2006. We opened just a few months before I started, and we've been mostly tracking numbers at our county animal control facility. So we keep an eye on intakes and adoptions and euthanasias. We have seen a 70% decrease in euthanasias since we opened in 2006. It goes down almost every year. There's a a couple of years in there where it goes up a little bit, but the impact that it's had on cat intakes and euthanasia
1: is just immense. That's fantastic. That's great. So you have good statistics and you do, you just said you do pet cats as well as community cats, you know, return to field.
2: Yes. About 40% of the cats we do are return to field cats or, you know, T N V R, and then the rest are pet cats and we do dogs, but not nearly as many as we do cats.
1: This is a question for Sarah to, over the years, did you always offer services for owned cats, or was there a period of time that you only did return to field or TNR cats?
2: Before our clinic opened, we had a TNR program that we did like one weekend a month, and that was only for community cats. And then once our clinic opened, the goal was to do all animals, so owned animals, feral cats, shelter animals. And the number of community cats that we've been doing was was fairly low when we first opened, but it it increased quite a bit within the first year. And now it's a big portion of what we do.
1: And for our listeners, Sarah, where is your clinic located? We're in Springfield, Illinois. And so we're going to go fast forward here. So I appreciate, you know, giving the background. And it sounds like you have a wonderful history, wonderful tradition there at your clinic and I want to applaud both of you for your hard efforts on everything that you're doing for community cats. Let's fast forward a little bit and we're entering into the world of coronavirus and you know how did your organization and this will be a question for for Sarah from a management side What was the thought process about how your operations were going to be when the coronavirus hit? So maybe sort of take us back to the early winter when people were starting to talk about coronavirus. And what were the conversations like that you had at your clinic?
2: So we hadn't really considered it a whole lot until it became clear that a shutdown was quite imminent, basically the the same week of the shutdown, I think. We were already booked out a number of weeks on cat surgeries and even longer than that for dog surgeries. So our big concern was, are we going to have to close entirely or will we be able to stay open for all patients? Will we only be able to see specific patients, maybe patients based on need? So our goal was to stay open and do as many surgeries as we could, knowing that if we closed at all, that we may very well feel the impact of all the unwanted litters that would be born. So I think it was a, a, maybe a Friday when the governor announced that things would be shutting down, but the governor did permit veterinary clinics to stay open in his shutdown orders. So that Friday, we knew that, that we would be here the following Monday doing surgeries.
1: So how did that get translated? I know that some organizations that were able to stay open throughout the shutdown period, they you know did 50% of their normal capacity. Did you operate as normal, or how did you adjust your your protocols and policies in there? Everybody was talking, you know, PPE and you know social distancing and all that kind of stuff. How did those protocols get adapted and changed, and how did that impact your numbers?
2: So about. Seven out of 10 of our transports canceled. So every day we go to another county and pick up animals and bring them back here for surgery. A lot of those groups are run by elderly people. And so 70% of our transports canceled because we were booked out so far with individual appointments, like people bringing their pets in. We were able to fill most of those spots with people on a wait list and so we had a few short days in March and April. We closed entirely for one day, but for the most part, we did regular days throughout the entire shutdown period. The transport groups did things like curbside drop-off and having people pay over the phone. Here, we limited the number of people that could come in our lobby. We sanitized everything, like clipboards and, and pens. In between clients, we wore masks. We have a, our shelter building is next door. So we tried to limit how much back and forth we had between the buildings. I think that's pretty much covers it.
1: Actually, it probably worked in your favor to have two separate buildings too. That's sort of of that the team's concept. Did, did you adapt a team's concept where you had, you know, one veterinarian with some technicians and another veterinarian working in separate shifts? Were you worried about a staff member getting coronavirus and then, you know, how that would impact the program overall?
2: We didn't really have the ability to do teams, so we all just came in every day and hope to God that nobody got coronavirus. <laughs> we knew that if someone did that, we would all have to take a couple of weeks off. So fortunately, everybody was, was in good health during time. We had a couple of shelter staff that had to stay home for a couple of weeks, but nobody ended up being
1: affected. So you were not at all affected by a staff member coming down with coronavirus or even someone who brought a pet in that then ended up coming up positive. Did you ever hear anything like that, Sarah?
2: We didn't. I only know one person who had a family member that got sick. And one of the local nursing homes was responsible, I think, for a huge proportion of the cases in our county.
1: That makes sense. So it was very I was a hot spot. There was a hot spot that you didn't necessarily have it in your community. Did you have any shortages with materials? Did you have to recycle supplies, anything? Did you have a hard time accessing supplies that you needed? So for
0: for a couple of months, we re-sterilized our gloves, which was a bit of a tedious process, but in addition to covering potential shortages of, of both surgical and exam gloves, it had the added benefit of being much more environmentally sound, although none of the vets really liked doing it. So you know, I, I don't know that anybody's really interested in the, the whole process of how we did it. If they are, when you give our contact information at the end, we can certainly share that. But as far as drugs, we did not have a shortage. I, I was a bit concerned for a while about ketamine availability. We never did run out and we, we were always able to get replacement, you know, a, a new supply. Morphine kept coming through fine. We have cloth masks. So, you know, disposable masks were not an issue. And I feel that we... We're pretty lucky in not having any supply issues because that was always in the back of our mind. At, at one point, we were a little bit worried that we wouldn't be able to get isoflurane, but none of that ever happened.
1: Just for perspective, Dr. Kidd, how many surgeries do
0: you do in a typical day? We do 60 to 65, majority cats, probably 15 ish dogs, and the rest cats. And it fluctuates. You know, we'll have a set number on our schedule, and then people can walk in with up to two ferals per person unscheduled. So if we have somebody, you know, not somebody, but a group of people that come in and we have 10 extra ferals, it can shoot our numbers up close to 70, but usually it's around 60.
1: And I wanted to touch on this topic. So we've heard about the concerns about a big kitten explosion, lots of pregnant cats being out there. As you are continuing to do your surgeries and working throughout these months where other facilities were usually totally shut down, Were you seeing a lot of pregnant cats? Absolutely.
0: We have our numbers from this year. So for March, April, and May of this year, we had 179 pregnant cats. That's out of a total of 1,057 female cats. And in those pregnancies, there were 801 feti. So we prevented 801 births. We will always prioritize if somebody calls and they're not on our schedule and we're booked full, but they say my cat is pregnant, we will always prioritize getting them in. And the same thing with ferals, you know, almost all the ferals are either, you know, we, we see a cycle like they start in heat in January and then they, we see our first pregnancies like February, March, and now we're seeing so many postpartums, the ones that we didn't get to first and, and the results, the kittens are now popping in, but we'll always, always prioritize you know, especially with ferals, because we could be their only option.
1: And just you don't have to have the statistics, but Dr. Kid, do you remember seeing, you know, a lot of complications? That's always been a great worry about the, the leave them out there theory, which was shared at a national level, which was leave them out, let them have their kittens and do their thing as if they're in a nice protective bubbled environment. But I am under the impression that there are a lot of risks out there and there are certainly a lot of complications for female cat having birth. Did you see some of those potential complications that would have happened if they had been allowed to go to term? Just not, I mean, not really complications, but, you know, you get ferals in who are
0: in pretty poor body condition. So going through a pregnancy, a birth, and then nursing for however long the kittens live, you know, if they make it to weaning age is certainly harder on the female. That would be the biggest thing I would think would be an issue would be just if they're not in the greatest body condition to begin with like they've had litter after litter after litter. We do see a fair number of pyos, not not a ton, but pyometra certainly would be something that we're hoping to avoid as well and by spaying these guys shutting off any any possibility that they will have a pyo. The biggest complication I would see was just be the influx of kittens that you would have then and Kittens, you know, the ones who make it, because as we know, a lot of feral kittens don't make it. If the queen is unhealthy or if if they're exposed to something, either viral, bacterial, predator in the wild. So just preventing those kittens from being born to begin with, I think, is just incredibly important.
1: Boulder, holistic vet, believes the future is feline. For far too long, cats have been treated like small dogs. Dr. Angie knows that now, more than ever... Our kitties rely on our ability to better understand them. Empowering pet parents all over the globe through her online courses, blogs, live talks, and supplements available through her online store, Dr. Angie is here to help cats and cat parents, no matter your location. Learn more about Dr. Angie and her practice at www.bolderholisticvet.com. And don't forget to use the coupon code KITTYLOVE for 10% off any supplement in her online store. Dr. Angie's unique point of view to veterinary medicine uses a holistic approach to keeping your cat healthy from the very start and for treating a variety of diseases. To learn more about Dr. Angie and her practice, visit www.bolderholisticvet.com and don't forget to
3: use the coupon code KITTYLOVE for 10% off any supplement in her online store. Say goodbye to scooping. Say hello to a better litter box. Introducing Kitty Sift, the eco-friendly waterproof litter box made of recycled cardboard. Just lift, sift, and reuse. See it on Amazon or go to kittysift.com and use coupon code PODCAST for 15% off. By now you know how powerful the Dubert software platform is, facilitating everything from transport to fostering with just a few clicks. But did you know that the team at Dubert also provides consulting and custom software development for your organization's needs? The team at Dubert has extensive experience in website design, SEO strategies, mobile application development, and even advanced capabilities involving integration to social media and text messaging. Big or small, the team at Dubert can do it all. And because Dubert operates as a social enterprise, all of the revenue from their consulting services goes back into developing even more innovative and life-saving solutions for animal rescues around the world. So if you are planning to increase your digital presence online through a new website or some SEO strategies, or if your organization is looking for an experienced web development team to support your operations, look no further than the team at Dubert. Reach out to Chris today at chris@dubert.com, and he'd be glad to discuss what you're trying to accomplish and how they can help.
1: Sarah, in your conversations with the uh, shelter that is part of your organization, and we're, we're recording this show just for full disclosure here, we're recording it in the middle of the summer, it's almost July, has the shelter seen any substantial impact with regards to intakes?
2: Yeah, it's been a weird year. As the weekend before the shutdown became official, we were able to get a whole bunch of animals out into foster to sort of ease the burden on our shelter staff. We weren't sure you know, what things would bring, how how many people would end up sick. So we were able to reduce the number of animals in our shelter by quite a bit that first weekend. We switched to doing adoptions by appointment. So we didn't have like the flow of clients in like we normally would. And then things were kind of slow. Intake was kind of slow. I think that a lot of people just kind of assumed we were closed. I think people weren't going out as much, so they weren't finding stray cats and finding kittens as much. We do pull animals in from other animal control facilities so that they're not euthanized there. And I think a a lot of the animal control facilities we work with had kind of limited hours as well. I run our barn cat program and I had a lot of adopters and not a lot of demand for us to take cats from other shelters like we normally do. And now that things are kind of getting back to normal, it's really ramped up. Our clinic is incredibly busy. Our shelter is incredibly busy. We're getting more phone calls than I think we've ever gotten in the 13 years that I've been here. We're still having a lot of adoptions, but we're seeing tons and tons of kittens. And it's just, I think, delayed a little bit this year, not because the kittens are coming late, but because the people are coming late with the kittens.
1: So we've talked about whether we're going to, in animal sheltering, are we going to have a new normal or are we going back to normal? And Sarah, what do you think you're seeing with regards to any future changes in animal sheltering?
2: I think that things here are, are, we're hoping to get things back to normal. We were on a a successful run there, I think, with being able to continue to to do as many spays and neuters as we do and seeing those euthanasia numbers at our local shelter go down. So I would hope that uh, we don't have any like major long-lasting changes once this all kind of blows over.
1: And from the standpoint of the clinic, you are just focused on getting as many cats in the building? And are you scheduling way out? Or are you all caught? You had a waitlist, but you never had a specific waitlist due to being closed. But you may have had a waitlist because others around you, other clinics, if there were clinics around you that are, that people might have used, you might have had greater demand. Has that sort of leveled off? And how long do people have to wait to get into your clinic these days?
2: It's not leveled off at all. It just seems to stay about the same level of busy every week for the last several weeks at least. I think that a lot of the private clinics were not seeing new patients, and so we were getting a lot of calls from people with new pets because a lot of people were getting new pets during the shutdown as well. And now that the clinics are back open, they're full. And so we're continuing to get calls from people who can't get in with a regular vet clinic. The shelters that did have to cancel their spay and neuter transports, they're now backed up. So some of our groups that we work with, about 15 groups to do spay and neuter transports, some of them have got openings within a month or two. Some of them are booked out into September. We are currently booking into the middle of August for cats and into November and December for dogs, which is a long time to wait for spay or neuter. (laughs) For cats, we are running into a lot of people who the cats have had kittens since they made the appointment or the cats are now pregnant and they don't want to bring them in to get spayed. So I think uh, it's, it's a pretty big backlog. It's pretty daunting, but we're just kind of coming in and plugging through every day.
1: Wow. That's amazing. We're talking like seven weeks for cats and like five months for dogs on the wait list there. That is incredible. And I dare ask you this question, Sarah, but what's your no-show rate?
2: (laughs) Some days it's really bad. Some days we may have 15 people on the schedule and two of them show up Other days, like today, every single person shows up. What we have noticed historically is that the springtime is our slower time. So May is always our slowest month of the year for whatever reason. And then once June hits, we get busier and busier until October. And part of that is that there are just more no-shows in the spring. And so even though we're booked out really far, the clients are more likely to show up this time of year We do reminder calls a couple of days in advance to try to reduce the no-shows, but any of the no-shows that we have are typically offset by the walk-in feral cats that we take. So today, every single person on the schedule showed up plus 13 or 14 extra feral cats. So we're sitting close to 70 surgeries today when we were originally booked at, I think, 56.
1: Yeah, that's the vicious cycle of running a spay-neuter clinic is that you want to be able to anticipate precisely how many cats you're going to have show up, and it never works out that way.
2: Fortunately, our vets are very flexible.
1: (laughs) That's right. That's a beautiful, beautiful thing. So, Dr. Kidd, before we finish up on time, I want to ask you, what are your thoughts or advice for other veterinarians that may be working in High volume, high quality spay neuter clinics. You know, if we do encounter a second wave, you know, what do we think about our spay neuter services going forward as we have future challenges in being able to keep open and keep these services going? Why is it important for us to have stayed open through this whole process? I think that
0: veterinary medicine in general and spay neuter in particular are essential services. And I think to Have been advocating for shutdown coming from from our our leaders, those with a lot of high volume spanier knowledge, during the midst of kitten season was short sighted and reactionary. And rather than issuing a fiat that everybody needs to shut down now and donate all of your supplies, I think it would have been much better if they had all said, We know that there are different circumstances around the country. And if you can stay open, we would love to be able to help you do that in the safest way possible. And for those of you who do feel you need to close because you're in a hot, a hot spot, then here are some ideas on what you can do when you eventually reopen. But to just say that everybody and all high-volume spaniard clinics or, or low-volume spaniard clinics or shelters need to come to a screeching halt, I think was absolutely the wrong thing to do. It would have been so much better If they had formed some kind of like group chat or not a database, but but like, a don't know, webinars or anything where everybody could be in communication with one another and share ideas like here's how we're sterilizing our gloves. Here's where we're getting ketamine. Here's what you can do. You know, here's where you can get some cloth masks that you don't have to take throwaway masks that are needed elsewhere. So they could, they could have put out so many good ideas of how people could stay open and not end up with this backlog of cats who are now needing sterilized and a bunch of kittens born in the interim instead of just saying, you all must shut down. And it feels almost like they laid a guilt trip on people that if you didn't shut down, you were endangering the entire country.
1: So, I mean, I think that the lesson at the end of the day is if challenges come ahead of us, in this whole process or in some other scenario, we have another pandemic with another disease of some kind. We just take a bit of a moment and look at the big picture as well as looking at your own backyard and really making a decision as an individual, consulting your own local veterinary association and whatever rules and regulations are out there around your business But just make sure you're representing the interests of your own organization and your own community, rather than listening necessarily, just doing blindly what is being, you know, was being presented across the country. So I think that's a very excellent idea, which is everybody has the right to their own opinion, but it's it's an opinion. It's not a must-do thing.
0: Right. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And, you know, when taking in the interests of everybody, your own community and everything, the interests of the cats have to be thrown in there, too. I think the cats are a big factor in what we have to consider. Great point. Great point.
1: Sarah, if folks are interested in finding out more about your clinic or the organization that you work with, how can people find you? Our website is
2: apl-shelter.org. And we are also on Facebook and I think Twitter and Instagram, but I'm not sure what our handles are.
1: Yeah, I'm sure people can find you.
2: Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners, Sarah? I would like to add that as I understand it, there were some states that did not deem veterinary services as essential or that just weren't permitting spay and neuter. As I understand it, some of the national animal welfare organizations were in talks with our governor when it became clear that there would be a shutdown and they were aiming to ensure that veterinary services would be deemed essential. And without that, you know, if if the governor won't let you stay open, there's nothing you can do about it. So I think it's important in those states where those services were forced to close by the governor that they maybe have a plan for that if this should happen again.
1: That's an excellent idea. And I did do a pop up webinar with Brian Cortis and he has a flowchart handout that helps organizations figure out whether or not the state has deemed veterinary services as essential or not. There's sort of a flow chart that you can go through with the various different departments and we'll make sure we get that attached into the show notes so that then if you need to go through that to ensure you're following the appropriate rules for your state, it's a great resource and we had a couple of organizations do it as a practice and um so they could see sort of how they ended up at the end, you know. Are they essential? Are they not essential? Can they do spay, neuter? Can they not? That kind of thing. And, and it worked out really well. So that's a great idea. And obviously, we want to make sure that folks are following the rules. And But we also are learning we may have to become advocates in many ways to ensure that we're able to keep the spay, neuter services going in our communities. So Dr. Kidd and Sarah, I would really like to thank you so much for spending some time with me today and to share your experiences with regards to coronavirus. Um, Dr. Kidd, do you have any last thoughts you'd like to share with the listeners? No. So uh, it's been great chatting with you again. Keep on doing what you're doing. I can't believe the amount of surgeries you're doing on a daily basis and the numbers that you have looking ahead of you, but I know you will put your head down and you'll persevere. So I want to thank you again for agreeing to be guests on my show. And I hope we'll have you on again in the future. Maybe, uh, Sarah, you can reach out to me when your wait list is all caught up. We'll have a party.
3: we will I'll bring (laughs) champagne that's it for this week please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review we love to hear what you think and a five-star review really helps others find the show You can also join the conversation with listeners, cat caretakers, and me on Facebook and Instagram. And don't forget to hit follow or subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, YouTube, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss a single show. Thanks for listening, and thank you for everything that you do to help create a safe and healthy world for cats.